1904, Tom Jenkins returned to America without a win, without his money, and without his title. What came next? Listen up and find out! Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You hit the button. You're there. I'm here. We're where? I am he, and you are he, as you are me, and we are all together. Goo 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 Whatever. What am I even talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling booker. I am a pro wrestling promoter. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling historian. And you might be asking, hey Nick, why is this show a week late? And the answer is, in addition to all those things, I am a pro wrestling ring announcer for my own show sometimes. We did a two-night of super event. We were celebrating 10 years of my show, Lucha Libre and Laughs. I don't talk about it too much because that's not the purpose of the show. But we had two crazy nights with a bunch of huge stars. We had a great time. But I was shouting crazy names for two straight nights. I blew out my vocal cords. I could barely talk louder than a whisper. My wife was very happy with that. But now my voice is back, and here we are talking about Tom Jenkins. Yes, we are back to the life of Tom Jenkins. I'm excited to continue the story. Hopefully you're excited to continue listening to this story. For those of you who might be tuning in for the first time, you might look at this and say, Part 5? Should I start somewhere around Part 1? And I believe you should. Thanks for checking it out. Thanks for being here. But... Some of the story might not make a lick of sense unless you start at the beginning. Tom Jenkins, part one, scroll down, hit play. Hopefully you enjoy the ride. And for some of my fellow historians, you might be listening to this and thinking, hey, dimwit, I read from this article that this happened because of this, and you forgot about this, and carry the three and divide by four, however you want to do it. Well, I'm making do with the best research that I can do. I'm going through the newspaper archives, both in the U.S. and in England, as you heard plenty of last time, interpreting things the best way I can, because that's a historian's job, is to contextualize and attempt to apply meaning, because history is a story that never ends until, you know, it ends and that'll be horrifying for us all, but there's nothing we can do about that, so let's just have fun and talk about wrestling until that happens. And if you forgot where we were after the last couple of weeks, my apologies. To quickly catch you up, we finished up in the last episode with Tom Jenkins returning from England. He had that big opportunity against George Hackenschmidt, the Russian Lion, so he dropped his title to hot-up-and-comer Frank Gotch under goofy circumstances where there was violence and punches and a disqualification, and for some reason he lost his title via disqualification to keep himself looking good and strong so he could set sail for England to challenge the Russian Lion, brilliant on a booking and business strategy because George Hackenschmidt was not really known for working matches. He was not interested in doing business. He was interested in winning and winning legitimately. So it had Jenkins cross the ocean with a championship belt around his waist or possibly in his luggage. I don't know how he would have worn it. And he gets there. He gets beaten by Hackenschmidt. Well, guess what? Now the championship of the United States is sitting in England being defended by a monster of a Greco-Roman wrestler who, by and large, would not give it up voluntarily. So, yes, that was a smart move. He then challenged Hackenschmidt, spent months working his way to get a shot. They finally put it together. He gets his ass kicked. Worse yet, he didn't get his money, was put in a position where he more or less was forced to sue to even get a penny. So all of this for no win, no money, back on a ship, heading back to the United States, and that's where we're picking things up today. The August 28th, 1904 Brooklyn Standard Union, a carnival of wrestling. Quote, Manager Watson has secured an extra attraction for the cozy corner this week. Tom Jenkins, the champion catch-as-catch-can wrestler. Jenkins, who has just returned from Europe, claims the title of catch-as-catch-can wrestler by virtue of the fact that he has never been thrown by opponent at that style of wrestling. 
The article claims that Jenkins will meet, quote, such clever opponents as Hackenschmidt, the Russian lion, Leon Pardeo, the Italian champion, John Painting, the butcher boy, and a bunch of other big stars, and any locals who may aspire for honors on the mat agreeing to throw two men in 15 minutes or forfeit the sum of $50. We're seeing how the title picture was muddied after Jenkins spending his summer in England, claiming to have the title that he lost to Frank Gotch. Meanwhile, Gotch spent most of his time on the West Coast and in the Midwest defending it. And I also wonder if the laundry list of impossible matches in that article was a carny move by the promoter trying to sell hot tickets, or if it's the reporter botching the quote. And as someone who's been weirdly misquoted by the press while talking about my own shows, I have to wonder if that's the case. The New York Evening World, August 29th, 1904. Champion Jenkins, after another match, wants to meet the Russian lion on the mat at Catches Catch Can style wrestling. Article recounts their match in London and how Hackenschmidt, according to Jenkins anyway, promised him a rematch under catch rules, claiming, quote, I am confident that I can throw him quicker at Catches Catch Can than he can me at Greco-Roman. Quite the bold statement. The article mentions the legal work to get the pay from the big match and advertises his appearance at Watson's Theater. So yeah, we already have Jenkins back in the U.S. more or less trying to brush aside his loss under Greco-Roman by claiming he would win under Catches Catch Can rules much faster than you know, Hackenschmidt could beat him. So it's creating this weird comparison by making him sound like a winner as opposed to a loser. It's a really great bit of, uh, of, of showmanship, if you will. I approve. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle, August 30th. Teddy Sitter, the well-known local wrestler, will meet Tom Jenkins tonight at a local theater. Quote, Sitter is a husky young man with quite a reputation as a wrestler. Well, I'm sold. But despite the less than spectacular opponents, the shows were well attended. According to the Standard Union on August 30th, quote, a good-sized audience was on hand last night at the Watson's Cozy Corner, and judging by the liberal applause, the shows were evidently appreciated. The vaudeville variety show included comedy, acrobats, dancing, singing, musical sketches, and Jenkins Wrestling Challenge, so you definitely got your money's worth when you bought a ticket to the Cozy Corner. And another reason I feel like these succeed so well is they took place in New York City. New York, since the days of Muldoon and Whistler, really hadn't been the hot spot of wrestling anymore. Things had kind of shifted to the Midwest, where you had men like Jenkins and McLeod and Evan Lewis, so on and so forth. Everything was centered more around Chicago, Cleveland, places like this. And New York, clearly a hub of people wanting to spend money, needing distractions, things they want to gamble on, didn't have a lot of that homegrown talent anymore. So when a big name like Jenkins set up a residency in a theater, it was a big deal. It got lots of press. People were very interested in buying a ticket or challenging the man himself. So yes, this was a big spectacle. This was a big deal. And the results were equally as wild. On August 31st, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, Sitter won from Jenkins. Quote, He mauled the youngster good and plenty. He was unable to accomplish his objective in the required time limit. The house was crowded with Sitter's friends, and his success in holding out against Jenkins was met with an ovation. Sitter found the bout exceedingly profitable and may try again next week. So, was Sitter a friend of the paper, just the local cool kid? Because he is getting a lot of press for not winning, but therefore winning. You know, he more or less, like we talk about in these matches so often, he won by not losing. He went into the situation and clearly got his ass kicked up and down the canvas, up and down the stage, however it was set up. But in the end, because he didn't lose properly, 
he won, he made some good money, his friends went wild, and he got a nice little article. I hope he knew how to read. I hope he clipped it out and put it in a scrapbook because, hey, quite the accomplishment. On September 3rd, boxer Young Corbett refereed the match between Tom Jenkins and George Bothner, which was won by Bothner. I assume it was the handicap-style match, and Bothner won by not losing in 15 minutes. It was a little on the vague side. But I, again, I make an assumption because if Bothner had cleanly beat Jenkins, I feel like it would have gotten a lot more attention, a lot more detail in the article. So therefore, again, conjecture on my part, but I feel it's correct. So August and September were filled with daily reports of his matches at the Cozy Corner and statements about being ripped off by London promoters and how he and Hackenschmidt weren't paid and his doubts about the lawsuit getting him his money. He made a statement that he'd hand off the rights to the $4,000 lawsuit for 30 cents. Boxer Young Corbett took him up on it. So yeah, it's here's the thing. He was promised a lot of money the money did not materialize. He got burned. He got ripped off. A tale as old as time in the wrestling industry. And he was suing, but you can't get blood from a stone, so therefore you really can't get a couple extra bucks out of a bum wrestling promoter. You could win a lawsuit, but getting them to actually pay up is often not going to happen, especially when it's in another country across an ocean in the early 1900s. You know, the, just the, the walls and walls, the challenges and challenges to making this happen become insurmountable at a certain point, and you just have to take the loss. The Appleton, Wisconsin post-crescent on September 15th with one of my favorite subjects and an amazing headline. Wrestling Fakes! As the wrestling season was about to heat up, the author looked at some suspicious matches like the Martin Burns-Jack Parr match, quote, The farmer will have no more chance of beating Parr than a child would have. The farmer was a good man at one time, but he has passed beyond that stage and is now satisfied to get the money in a handicapped affair, or in any other kind of match. He also brought up Gotch versus Jenkins, quote, However, his victory over Jenkins does not look so well since the many claims have been made by people who are in touch with both men that the match was arranged for Gotch to win. Shocking, I know. Continued, It is disgusting to true sportsmen to be obliged to witness the matches and then be unable to tell whether they were contested on their merits or not. From all accounts, it seems that most of the wrestlers in the West are not particular when they go into a contest on its merits or not. It is, therefore, up to the managers of these exhibitions to lay down a law to these men and make them contest on the square or put them out of business entirely. There is no reason why wrestling cannot be conducted squarely and above board, the same as other sports, but it is evident that many of these wrestlers prefer to fake a match. I know, you're outraged. Everybody hearing this, much like everybody who read this, is just shocked, appalled, outraged, can't believe their eyes, can't believe their ears, can't believe the thoughts dancing between those ears. Of course everyone was in on it. They're asking managers to make sure the wrestlers are on the square. Who do you think is dividing the profits at the end of the night? They're acting like these wrestlers are rogue agents in an otherwise clean sport. No. Wrestling was the easiest sport to prearrange because it was the easiest sport to fake without injury and therefore make it a good betting night for everybody who was on the inside. That's just life, that's how it is, but I love that the press calls it out every now and then. Because it's still real to me. Murr. From the Washington Times on September 16th, 1904, rough and tumble match for champ. Tom Jenkins would fight Jeffries in Mexico under Bowery rules. Jenkins claimed that if they could get a $5,000 backer for Jeffries, quote, that he could whip him. Further quote, he thinks that the fight could be held in Mexico where biting, backheeling, and other tactics of the riverfront are held in high favor among men. Tom O'Rourke, who knows something of rough fighters, and Johnny White, 
who has the reputation of being able to whip anybody on the Bowery, said last night that a rough-and-tumble battle, Jeffries would kill Jenkins in five minutes. Rough-and-tumble. What was it? So, rough-and-tumble is... I don't know, you'd call it like yay old mixed martial arts, but without the sportsmanship or even that many rules. Rough and Tumble was the closest thing to a duel two men could have without a weapon being involved. You might remember us talking about that in the um, Up and Down Wrestling episode, where Rough and Tumble would often be a to the death, to the a man can't get up, or in some horrifying circumstances, until an eye was taken out of a head. Yes, you heard me right. Sometimes a rough-and-tumble match would go until somebody was blinded in one eye. And if you're Tom Jenkins, that really narrows things down for how bad it could be. It's a situation where anything goes, the sort of thing that only the worst people would gamble on, but the worst people are a lot more numerous than you ever suspect so a lot of money could be made on such a match. But this was, in a way, a great PR business move by Jenkins. He's calling out the boxing champion of the world in a time when boxing was a much bigger sport than wrestling. He was saying, hey, you know, under these rules, I could beat the dog crap out of the toughest guy in your eyes, in the press's eyes, in the boxing world's eyes, because if you just make it essentially a street fight, he has no chance against me and my wrestling prowess and my sheer brutality and my super strength. So it's the sort of call-outs you see even to this day in mixed martial arts. How many times does an MMA star call out a top-name boxer? Because guess what? Those top-name boxers are out-earning him 10 to 1 at the minimum. You know, you'd ha you always have the guy at the bottom calling out the guy at the top, whether it's in the same sport. You know, you have the guy who's five and three who finally got a two-fight winning streak. Of course he's going to call out the champ because he's off a hot win and maybe he's able to get that fight after all based on momentum, based on press, based on shooting off his mouth. And shooting off your mouth for a big payday, shooting off your mouth, Cutting a promo to get the fight you want and the money you want, well, that's pro wrestling, baby. Doesn't matter what sport it is, doesn't matter what business it is, doesn't matter even if it's in the political sphere, it's pro wrestling. But as you can imagine, it didn't happen. So moving forward, from the October 1st, 1904 Butte Daily Post, Jenkins to meet the great Dutch wrestler George Whedon, whom got Jenkins bookings in England and is looking to, quote, match him against Hackenschmidt, the giant Dutchman, which, you know, it's just good to see them doing their due diligence with articles like this. Because despite the faux-Dutch veneer of the story, Hackenschmidt would be traveling back to Europe via America from his Australian tour, and there were hopes for a rematch versus Jenkins. So you did have the American champ go across the ocean and lose to the, the, the Russian lion. But you know what? That was under these Greco-Roman rules, which really wasn't a thing in America for the most part anymore. So there was this hope that you bring the Russian to America and he'd have to compete in the American style. And then Jenkins could have his chance for redemption. And speaking of Greco-Roman rules, the October 24th, 1904, Inner Ocean reports that Ernest Rover is willing to back Danish champion Egbert against any American wrestler in Greco-Roman rules for a $500 side bet. Quote, this challenge is especially directed at Tom Jenkins. So this illustrates yet again that Jenkins, despite having lost the title to Frank Gotch, and despite losing to Hackenschmidt in England, was still seen as the primary guy for catches catch can wrestling, for pro wrestling in the United States. Everybody is still calling him out. He is the standard. Everybody was going after him. If anybody's trying to make a name for themselves, they are calling out Tom Jenkins, not Frank Gotch, not at this point. But other business, of course, came his way, because you have things like this. From the Fort Wayne Daily News from October 26, 1904, 
Tom Jenkins was set to referee the match between Ed Conley and H.E. Dial, only notable because it calls Jenkins the, quote, champion wrestler of the world, showing how easy it was to keep the waters muddied when it came to who was the actual champion. Again, you have to slap a title on anything with an advertisement for the top guy, because as soon as you advertise a guy is the best in America, but he doesn't have a championship. Well, why doesn't he have a championship? Well, he lost it under suspicious circumstances before going to England, and you can see this as being a convoluted, complex conversation that nobody wants to have while trying to advertise a simple celebrity referee appearance. But there was chances to get him the title back. The November 7th Buffalo Courier announced that Tom Jenkins will face the winner of the Gotch-Rogers match late. Of course, there was going to be drama. Of course, there were going to be problems. From the November 28th Akron Beacon Journal, Gotch refuses to come to terms. The champion heavyweight wrestler doesn't want to meet Tom Jenkins. Quote, The present champion claims that he is not afraid of Tom Jenkins, the big Cleveland man. But nevertheless, he refuses to come to terms yesterday afternoon, and a warm argument between Jenkins and Gotch's managers took place over the long-distance telephone, and several hot messages were sent to the present champion. November 30th, Buffalo Courier. The negotiations between Gotch and Jenkins are ongoing, with Jenkins willing to wrestle for 1,000 aside, but insisted that the match take place in Cleveland, and Gotch refusing because he assumed it was a screw job for the hometown boy. Quote, We are on the friendliest terms with both men, and do not care an iota who wins. We just want to see the contest, knowing as we do what an exciting battle it will be, as both men are out for the money. They would be foolish to let a big opportunity like this slip by. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I've kind of alluded to, I'm pretty sure every single Jenkins and Gotch match was a work. They dropped the title in a screwy way to belt up Gotch for Jenkins' trip. There's a lot of drama. A lot of people want to pay money to see the rematch, see if Jenkins can win the title back in a proper match. So, of course, they are showmen. They know every trick of the trade. They know to argue about terms, argue about pay, argue about location, argue about everything in the press, publicly, make it very dramatic so when it finally comes together, it is extra exciting. People go, fuck yeah, finally, we got to see this. They buy their tickets. They buy their train tickets. They book a hotel. They leave their wives because their wife said, no, you're not going to go watch that Tom Jenkins, Frank Gotch match. What are you insane? We have a farm. We have children to feed. And you have to say, to heck with all of you, I'm going to go watch some wrestling. And rightfully so, am I right? So yeah, they are making it very public, but it's also all ballyhoo. It's all just showbiz nonsense, and it's beautifully done. But in the meantime, Jenkins is, of course, offering his opinions on uh, on other grappling arts. December 1st, Buffalo Courier. Wrestler Jenkins doesn't believe in the Jap game. Jiu-Jitsu is nothing but a cross between the old-fashioned collar-and-elbow wrestling and rough-and-tumble fighting. Such is the opinion of Tom Jenkins, formerly the world's champion wrestler. Through the article, Jenkins runs down the Japanese Jiu-Jitsu teacher he met in London as knowing holds that English schoolboys had learned for hundreds of years, claiming it is bad wrestling and that, quote, there is no struggle, as all there is is each man taking a bone-breaking hold and then tugging until one or the other sacrifices a bone. When he taps the mat and admits defeat, no referees are used and it is wholly a question of which man's bones are strongest and least likely to break. Jiu-jitsu, huh? Not for Thomas. And variations on this was published through the rest of the month. My personal favorite was the Grass Valley California Morning Union on Christmas Day with a typo or misspelling. Tom Jenkins says Jim Jitsu is a sort of Cornish wrestling. I assume that's short for James Jitsu. Never met the guy, never heard of him. But 
we do see that rivalry between wrestling and jiu-jitsu, which became very prevalent in martial arts of the 90s and 2000s. We would see those challenge matches going behind closed doors, in a ring, on the mat, in the octagon, and it was even going strong back in those days where you'd have the Japanese judo and jiu-jitsu men touring the country and cross-pollinating with the catch-as-catch-can wrestlers in England and the United States. And that, of course, leads to them going, oh, well, jiu-jitsu is just bad wrestling. You know, they use these holds to just try to break each other's bones as opposed to pin in the gentlemanly fashion with which we do. Because catch wrestling holds were by and large ways to turn a man over to get his shoulders down as opposed to jiu-jitsu where the hold is the end of itself. You know, you're not applying a straight arm bar to pin a guy, you're using a straight arm bar to make him tap out in competition or to break his arm in self-defense. So jiu-jitsu had kind of gotten a little bit of good publicity. It got itself a little hot streak. People were enthralled by kind of the romantic foreignness of it. And jiu-jitsu instructors were making good money teaching classes. It became kind of the fashionable thing for the upper class. There's a whole thing of Ritsu from England that I'll talk about eventually. But, of course, then the established wrestlers have to run it down as being a bad sport, a bad art, bad wrestling, to preserve their image as the real deal. And another great headline from the December 2nd Oakland Tribune, hyping the upcoming jenkins Boyazel match in the most sarcastic tone possible with, quote, wrestlers will wrestle, champion Jenkins and Algerian to meet in game of hug. Aww. But at the same time, the gotch match was still on everyone's mind. The December 3rd Buffalo Times published, Gotch tells what he thinks of Tom Jenkins. In it, Gotch runs down Jenkins for demanding 60% of the purse, win or lose. Quote, Did you ever hear anything like it in your life? He asked last night. I am the champion, yet Jenkins wants to dictate the terms of the match and take 60% win or lose, while I take 40% win or lose. Win or lose. Not only that, but he wants the match to take place in Cleveland, his own town, and demands his own referee. I don't believe he wants to wrestle me again anyway. He knows I won't stand for any such terms as he proposes. Other papers took the opposite view, like the December 5th Evansville Courier and Press with, Is Gotch afraid? Insinuating that Gotch was looking for excuses to avoid a rematch with Jenkins. So you have the two men in the press taking shots at one another. He's afraid. He's up to something sneaky. He's trying to be greedy. He doesn't deserve this. What's he trying to pull? He's doing, you know, you just had these guys taking shots at each other, making it very dramatic, making the papers ask these questions. Papers are taking sides. Fans are taking sides. This is a great way to build a match. This isn't even in the, you know, it's like Twitter. On Twitter, when you have fighters taking shots at each other, you have the guys in the press conferences taking shots at each other. It's the same as it ever was. These guys just had to work a little bit slower because they're going via telegraph in the newspapers, getting all the drama, getting everybody hyped up. And unfortunately, newspapers in those days, it wasn't like Twitter or YouTube where you could have the lunatics saying awful things in the comments. But you know what? The marks were worked up regardless. I guarantee you that. And around this time, the papers were also lighting up with the rumor that George Hackenschmidt would be touring the U.S. on the way back from Australia and would be wrestling Jenkins in New York City the following March. But first things first, he had to eat what's on his plate. And what was on his plate? The San Francisco Chronicle on December 13th hyped the match against Buziel, described as the Algerian Greco-Roman champion, who was weighing in at around 200 pounds and was training very hard and looked much trimmer than when he arrived in America. 
In a press meeting, he even did the, quote, grab your waistband and hold it out to show how much weight you've lost move, like the after photo in a diet commercial. In true monster heel mode, his training was described as a brutal regiment of weightlifting and wrestling. His trainer was the French legend Paul Pons, whom he later defeated, and claimed to be undefeated himself. Quote, while he entertains a wholesome respect for our friend Mr. Jenkins, he is firmly convinced that his time has not yet come to fall. The Oakland Tribune on December 16th, Wrestlers Will Struggle Tonight. The article wistfully looks back at the days of Muldoon, Whistler, Miller, and Bauer in the Bay Area, and goes over the rules of Greco-Roman wrestling, including the illegality of interlacing your fingers during a hold. Describing it as, quote, a strange injunction, Jenkins explained it while wrestling with Carl Miller, showing the fingers might become locked so that it would be impossible to disengage them, and also how a brutal opponent might break finger after finger of a wrestler who used that method. In the old days, several causes of strangulation resulted when fingers were locked around the throat and the man with the hold was unable to let go which is so goddamn weird to describe. It's kind of like in the animal kingdom when like a, this is gonna get real gross for a second, when like an animal had like a barbed penis to make sure that the, the female of the species couldn't get away and they were stuck together in a lustful moment. Finger interlacing is a bad idea for a couple of reasons. Then being stuck and somebody getting strangled is not one of them. Primarily, it's not a strong hold. That's why you have things like a monkey grip or a gable grip, because interlacing your fingers just doesn't provide the same strength. But more importantly, it's easier for the fingers to break because, you know, interlace your fingers and kind of like shift it side to side. And you just think about what happens if one arm gets yanked in one direction and one arm gets yanked in the other. You could essentially break your own fingers or you know, you interlace your fingers on a hold like that, well, it becomes real easy for somebody to reach up, grab a finger, and give it a little twist. If you remember our episode on the ancient Olympics, they eventually had to outlaw finger breaks because grips like that led to a finger being exposed, snap, crackle, pop, well, now a guy can't wrestle or fight possibly ever again. So, yeah, not a great grip technically, it makes for a rather bad climax when a finger is broken and a guy has to quit or is not allowed to continue because of it. But by all means, let's make it a little more dramatic where it sounds like a rope around the neck of a bucking bronco and you will accidentally strangle a man with your weirdly interlaced fingers. But back to the match concept as a whole, some papers refer to him as a Turk or even a terrible Turk probably because in the days of the still expanse of Ottoman Empire, anyone from the region was by default a Turk to Americans who have never quite grasped the concept of racial and national subtleties. Buzayel was Algerian, which had been free from Ottoman control for centuries, but had been violently annexed by France and was held as a colony until it achieved independence in 1962. Though most papers got it right, however, and even an attempt to brand him as the awful Algerian. I mean, at least they're trying, right? The December 16th San Francisco Examiner reported that Jenkins finished up his training by beating the two biggest members of the police department. Quote, his knowledge of the Greco-Roman game and his superb conditioning made the policeman putty in his hands. And hey, what a great way to do it, because who does not dream about whooping a cop's ass? The December 18th, 1904, New York Times. And they got the date wrong, but everything else quite right. The night before in San Francisco, Tom Jenkins wrestled Algerian grappler Buzayel under Greco-Roman rules. Just past the two-hour mark, they were at the edge of the mat, and Jenkins secured a hammerlock and both rolled off the platform and into the crowd. Quote, there was a great confusion for a few seconds, and when the men regained their feet, there was a large puce cuticle missing from Jenkins' abdomen. There were also teeth prints in his arm where he'd been bitten by Boozy Yell. 
Referee Roche awarded the match to Jenkins, and the police placed Buzayel under arrest. A charge of mayhem was pref was preferred against Buzayel, and he was taken to jail. The Butte Daily Post relayed the story under the amazing headline, Algerian wrestler is a bloody cannibal too. The San Francisco Examiner, of course, laid into the racism with, quote, The Algerian mammoth Buzayel, unable to resist Tom Jenkins' strength, sinks his fangs into the white man's flesh. After the match was called off, quote, Police poured into the ring, and the spectators hooted and hollered at the Algerian. The conditions were such that a riot seemed imminent. Buzayel bared his lips and tried to make it appear that he hadn't the necessary teeth to inflict damage of that kind. In the matter of excuses, he hadn't a leg to stand on, however. The wound spoke for itself, and the Algerian was taken and charged by the police. Jenkins was driven to the hospital to have his wound treated. Buzayel was arrested and released on a $100 bail. The next day, according to the Spokane Spokesman Review, Jenkins declined to press charges, which makes me wonder what the hell just happened, because this was a weird match, a weird finish, a weird outcome. It got a lot of press, and it also made Jenkins very sympathetic, both through the rules, uh, the action itself, and, you know, him up against a savage Algerian, so you get the racist American component of the time. And yeah, I do feel like this was a work, this was a setup, this was a big money moment, because it did make Buzayel look like a savage who would do anything to win, which would probably heat him up a little bit as a heel. People would want to see him wrestle just to see him get beaten or to see if he's going to try to nibble upon another opponent. Tom Jenkins, well, kind of a babyface turn for him because he'd been kind of getting beaten down in the press over the gotch situation and his demands. So it makes everybody sympathetic to him, sympathetic to his plight, and makes him look like quite the gentleman because he declined to press charges. The December 26, 1904 Oakland Tribune, Wrestlers to Grapple. Though the font made me think that it said crapple, and I pondered what that meant for several seconds before realizing what it said, and I'm not sure if that's an indictment or the, of the font or my own reading and comprehension skills. But the article announced an upcoming match against Jack Karkeek at Woodward's Pavilion in San Francisco on January 10th, 1905. The San Francisco Chronicle claimed it was to be two out of three falls, catch as catch can, yet at the same time, quote, the same as those under which Jenkins and Buzayel met, and how, quote, under these rules there could be very little loafing or resting done. This will make the action faster throughout the match, which will be entirely satisfactory to the audience. They described Karkeek as, quote, Years ago, he was the daddy of them all at the catch-as-catch-can game, but that was a considerable number of years ago. And I just want to be referred to as the daddy of them all at anything. If you have any ideas, please tweet about it, because I just need to feel good about myself in this situation. The San Francisco Chronicle on January 1st, 1905, putting over the Karkig Jenkins match by hyping them both up as, quote, practically undefeated claiming that Karkeek hasn't lost since winning his title in 1889 and never losing since. A statement that I'm sure Tom Cannon and a few other UK wrestlers would, of course, dispute. And this description of Jenkins technically does follow the letter of the law, but the, not the spirit of the law, if you will. It creating a yeah-but defense for his losses, which were either Greco-Roman rules or via disqualification, injury, or forfeit. So yeah, it's it really does kind of bend the corners, uh, softens the edges, blurs the details on both men's careers. But hey, nothing sells tickets like two undefeated champions locking up to decide who's the better man. According to the Washington Times on January 3rd, Jenkins was in training at Shannon's Cottage in San Rafael with Tim McGrath 
and Karkik was training somewhere on the beach, combining gymnasium and road work. Old-timey CrossFit, everybody. The Courier Journal claimed that Jenkins was also training with young Corbett, was still challenging Jim Jeffries, and was willing to wrestle or fight Gotch, with the winner getting Jeffries. In the same pages, Gotch was floating as having an interest in boxing Jeffries. Everybody wants to box Jeffries. Again, more money in boxing, more prestige in boxing, more press in boxing. So even if you had no intention of actually doing it, because I can guarantee you this, Jim Jeffries didn't want to box a wrestler. He had bigger money things on his plate rather than some carnival freak show match. But you know what? It made the wrestlers look tougher because they're putting the challenge out there. And again, just getting their name fired up in the press. And Tom Jenkins takes it to the next level with this article from the Buffalo Inquirer on January 5th, 1905. Tom Jenkins weeps when he thinks of the money he lost by not becoming a fighter instead of a wrestler. The article quotes Jenkins as lamenting the decline of wrestling and his wish to have been a boxer instead. Quote, I have long wished that I were a pugilist, said Jenkins sadly. I could have made my pile by this time and have retired. And that, quote, the public will turn out in large numbers to see a mill, where they could not be drawn with a team of oxen to see a contest on the mat. Which seems excessive to trash your own sport while trying to sell tickets to your own sport. It's like, yes, I understand you're trying to hype up yourself as being tough, and that's why you challenge Jeffries, but it's extra weird when you become a crybaby complaining that you were a wrestler instead of a boxer and that fans will not come out and support wrestling. It's like really bad low-level indie wrestling shows, you know, lamenting that nobody supports local wrestling because nobody came out to watch their bad show. And why are they not watching the bad show? Because they are essentially admitting it's a bad show by complaining. Hope that makes sense. But it gets better, and by better, I mean worse. Washington Times, January 9th. Wrestling doomed, says Tom Jenkins. Ex-champion thinks of quitting the game. It's the same basic story, same basic info, going over how wrestling is harder than boxing for less pay, and top wrestlers and champions are overly protected by their managers and themselves, so big matches are getting fewer. And yeah, during this time, both Gotch and Jenkins were pining for boxing glory and paydays. Was it purely financial? Was it the challenge? Was it because neither saw a bright future for the sport of wrestling? Maybe all of the above? Who knows? But yeah, this was a very common theme during this era from the top men. But on a brighter note, here's some exciting news. The San Francisco Examiner on January 9th, 1905, claimed that promoter Morris Levy, quote, has arranged to admit ladies free with escorts and that the first balcony is reserved for them. How gentlemanly, am I right? On Tuesday, January 10th, 1905, Tom Jenkins versus Jack Karkeek went down at Woodward's Pavilion in San Francisco. According to the San Francisco Examiner on the 11th, Tom Jenkins disposed of Jack Karkeek in two straight falls under catch-as-catch-can rules. Quote, the crowd in attendance was not as large as the average gathering amateur fight nights. There was a sprinkling of women in the lower gallery, and they seemed intensely interested in the one-sided struggle between the men of Thrawn. The paper described with great interest a series of introductions of pro boxers with upcoming fights. Quote, if there was any fighter in town who was not introduced last night, it was simply because he wasn't there. Announcer Billy Jordan was quite hoarse when he had to finish presenting the assorted champions to the spectators. So yeah, you had every famous boxer in a hotly contested boxing town. You know, you could hear a lot about that in my Parson Davies series. So San Francisco was a hot boxing market. And you had all these top boxers ringside. You had the announcer more or less holding up the show to announce every single one of them in attendance. So yeah, maybe Gotch and Jenkins were correct to complain about the state of wrestling. And speaking of the wrestling, when it came down to the wrestling, betting odds were 2-1 to one for Jenkins. The first fall was all Jenkins, with Karkik doing the best to escape his holds with limited success. Quote, 
Jenkins obtained an effective half-Nelson, and the referee dropped to the carpet to watch results. The crowd took the cue and jumped to its feet. Jenkins had a vice-like grip of Karkik's neck, and under a steady strain, Karkik's shoulders settled down until they touched the mat. First fall for Jenkins in 17 minutes and 30 seconds. Karkik looked a little better in the second, quote, but a suspicion arose that it was only by courtesy of his younger and more powerful opponent. There were a few holds and misses, a few head spins and showy rolls, and then Jenkins used a combination lock in which one forearm pressed against Karkik's neck and chest, while Jenkins' other arm, his knee, and the weight of his body generally forced Karkik down until his shoulders were glued to the mat a second time. The time, 4 minutes and 45 seconds. The San Francisco call stated, The elder man showed that he had all the tricks of the game by heart, but he could not work his holds on Jenkins. The San Francisco Chronicle quoted, I promised yesterday that I would have no excuses to offer in the event of my being defeated, said Karkik after the match. But, and he said this with a twinkle in his eyes, I have two. The first is that Jenkins is a truly wonderful wrestler, the best I ever met. And the second is that either I am too old or he is too young. Karkik had no excuses beyond these and frankly tendered his conqueror by hand and admitted that he had met a better man than himself. From Jenkins, I was confident I could beat Karkik, said he, and I am just as confident that I will defeat Gotch when I meet him in Cleveland on January 25th. Boom. Heck of a promo. So you have this charming old Englishman saying, oh, I don't have an excuse. I've got two. This guy rules. It just completely puts over Jenkins. Baby faces him up. No resentment. Just shakes his hand and tells everybody how awesome Jenkins is. And then Jenkins says, yeah, I had no doubt I was going to win. Just like I've got no doubt that I'm going to beat Frank Gotch. If that's not a fire up to set the stage for a rematch against Gotch with the public on his side, again, I don't know a better way to do it. Unsurprisingly, newspapers coast to coast started announcing the confirmation of the Jenkins-Gotch rematch, though very few printed the same date, and it was listed anywhere from the 12th to the 25th. The January 13th Tacoma Daily News had some unkind things to say regarding Jenkins' public statement about breaking into boxing. Quote, The truth is that the wrestling game has been so crooked that the public will not stand for it anymore, and the mat artists are compelled to do something else if they want to eat. Jenkins is sure that he can whip Jeffries and is going to get young Corbett to show him the fine points of the boxing game. A statement that Gotch and Jenkins were four-flushing to get a little cheap notoriety would not come far from explaining the situation thoroughly. Yeah, just like I was saying earlier, it's such a bitter amount of ranting, so severe in its details, that it kind of goes beyond just trying to sell tickets, trying to fire themselves up. It sounds like really unself-aware complaining. So yeah, it's no wonder that the press kind of took it that way. From the January 13th, 1905 Evening World, Frank Gotch and Tom Jenkins are matched. Don't know how the posters will ready, but suppose if the wrestlers stick to their respective pretentiousness, they will have to be arranged like this. Frank Gotch, champion catches catch can wrestler of the world versus Tom Jenkins, champion catches catch can wrestler of the world. There is one consolation. After the match, unless it ends with a draw, one or the other will have to drop the title for a few weeks at least, and the wrestling situation will have a chance to clear a bit. So, yeah, I love them again, kind of poking fun at the sport, with both men more or less claiming the championship, despite Gotch actually having the championship, and how a title win will more or less only be a short reprieve from that level of bullshit. Many papers speculated if the Gotch-Jenkins match in Cleveland would even happen. Papers like the Buffalo News on January 17th speculated that it could fall apart because Jenkins insisted on dictating the terms of the match. Gotch proposed a 60-40 door split and a $2,000 purse. Jenkins stated that, quote, 
Gotch has turned himself ridiculous and expressed the belief that Gotch doesn't want to wrestle him. Jenkins countered with a $5,000 side bet and 100% of the door. But ultimately, Jenkins agreed to Gotch's terms. And I feel that this type of bickering in the public almost pushed things too far. You want it to be hot. You want it to be controversial. You want the arguments to be public because, hey, a wiser man than I once said that controversy equals cash. But when you're pushing it too far and it looks like the wheels may come off and it looks like the whole thing may fall apart, well, people are less likely to think about spending money. It can have a chilling effect. And I feel that they put a toe over the line pretty often during this uh, during this setup. But it was apparently still a hot property and everybody wanted a piece. From the Ottawa Citizen on January 28th, 1905, Montreal promoters try to steal the Frank Gotch versus Tom Jenkins match away from Cleveland, but their 2000 offer paled next to the $5,000 purse that was waiting for the winner in Cleveland. The Buffalo Inquirer on February 2nd covered how Will McKay was chosen as referee. Gotch and Jenkins camps argued for three hours before it was decided to put all the names in a hat and choose that way. When McKay was chosen, Gotch had the warmest of words for him. Mr. McKay is perfectly satisfactory to me, and I have not a single thing against him personally. What a compliment. So yeah, whether that specific situation was a work or a shoot, it is when you are working a match especially in these days when you were working but presenting it as legitimate the referee was as important as the other two men in the ring because you either either had to have somebody who was honest and not in on it or you had to have somebody who was crooked but going according to plan we saw this a lot when we discussed wrestling in the 1920s the gold dust trio era where if a referee is in on, in on it but in the wrong side, well, that can fuck up the plan for everyone. If you have a referee who is supposed to declare guy A the victor but wants guy B to win because he bet a bunch of money going on that direction, it can fuck up the whole plan. It can cause problems for everyone. So yeah, the arguing about who is a referee for a wrestling match is a legitimate reason to be arguing. And it also makes it very dramatic. So yeah, it's it's important for every reason imaginable. And then it finally came down to the match. From the February 3rd, 1905 New York Times. Jenkins loses to Frank Gotch in Cleveland. The article covers the physicality and looks of Gotch to the point of horniness. They gave Jenkins his prop stating that, quote, Jenkins managed to get Gotch on the mat and worked all of the holds known in the sport for 28 minutes before the shoulders of Gotch touched the mat. It was more of an effort that Jenkins had bargained for, and he was pretty well used up while Gotch appeared to be comparatively fresh. In the second, it only took Gotch 49 seconds to get Jenkins down on all fours and turn him over with a crotch and wrist hold. The third seemed to be all action. Quote, for a time, honors were about even, both men puffing and blowing like porpoises. Such a flattering term. Gotch got the win at the 12-minute mark, winning the $2,500 purse, but more importantly, beating Jenkins clean with a pin. Keep in mind, he won the title through a disqualification due to throwing elbows, throwing punches, being a little too violent, so this legitimized Gotch in a huge way. This made Gotch the, you know, the guy. He finally beat Jenkins in a way that you could not take it away from him. And that is a big goddamn deal. The New York Evening World quoted Gotch with, quote, It was a hard match, and just as hard as I expected. Jenkins is a great wrestler, and he is sure to be heard from yet. The way I beat him was on my speed and endurance. The same paper had a smaller article, quote, Will back Jenkins to throw Gotch. Frank Gotch's win over Tom Jenkins was a fluke. Jenkins was thrown over the ropes, sprained his back, was all tangled up in the ropes and half off the platform when the referee gave Gotch the deciding fall. When Gotch won in 48 seconds was a lucky one. Jenkins out-wrestled and out-generaled Gotch at every turn. 
I have offered to bet $2,500 that Jenkins can throw Gotch, and the latter has promised to meet me today and make the match. Jenkins can get $25,000 backing by Cleveland sportsmen who saw last night's match for a return engagement. Harry Pollock. February 7th, Fort Wayne Daily News claiming that Jenkins admitted to an arm injury but wouldn't drop off the show because too many people would lose too much money. So Gotch let him get in a win to keep it interesting, then beat him in two straight. Though the Pittsburgh Press the next day offered a different take, quote, Gotch giving up a fall to change the gambling odds so he could clean up with a bet on himself. Other papers then claimed that Jenkins was just a crybaby and making excuses. On the 23rd, the Waterbury Democrat and many other papers published Gotch's reply, since Jenkins' manager Harry Pollock had been making excuses, claiming that Jenkins would never get another fall on him. Quote, Mr. Pollock is pleased to raise the old cry of lack of conditioning of Jenkins. One would judge from his comments that Jenkins was really a cripple when he faced me on the mat. So much to unpack. So yeah, like I said after the initial article, the general picture that was painted is that Gotch's time came. It was his time to shine. He won the battle to get a clean fall, a clean win. He legitimized himself as the champion. Why would this be? Well, you know what? There's money to be made in Frank Gotch. There's also the possibility that Jenkins is getting another shot against Hackenschmidt. It was smart to keep the belt on Gotch. But also, there was so much hype around Jenkins and the outcome of their previous uh, contest that the betting was definitely going in Jenkins' favor. So you cooked the match so that Gotch wins in the end. And everybody who bet on Gotch made a shitload of money. So from the gambling aspect, that's the way you do it. From the setting up future matches for both men, that's the way you do it. And then they bring it back to, oh, he was hurt. So, of course, you know, he deserves another shot. Because if he was healthy, he would have really won. But he had a hurt arm. And to prove this, we will set up another match as soon as possible if Gotch isn't afraid. And I also like the kind of shot at Gotch from some news sources discussing how he only gave Jenkins the first fall intentionally so that he could cook the uh, the betting against him because hey everybody was expecting you know Jenkins to uh, you know to get too straight or is expected to go this way and therefore he laid down intentionally on the first one so that everybody would start betting against him. So when he turned on the uh, turned on the gas and came back and beat t beat him with two more straights, everybody's money would be going back to him because the odds had changed. And then you have Jenkins kind of almost going in a different direction, saying that you know he knew he shouldn't have wrestled, but he went in there to you know to make sure that like the promoter didn't lose his money and all this other nonsense and claimed that the deal was Gotch would give him one to keep it interesting, but he knew he couldn't beat Gotch in a fair contest with his injured arm. But next time, but next time, by golly, that'll be a different story. So, yeah, you have every conceivable layer of bullshit and excuse-making and long-term planning and short-term booking and cooking things so both men have a reason for a rematch down the road but both men now can talk more trash in the media which will make both of them hotter properties to wrestle literally anyone coast to coast so both men despite one had to lose and one had to win one had to be champion one had to not kept both men hot important and top attractions in the wrestling game in the united states but frank gotch now he is legitimized as the champion Jenkins is still really looked at as the second best, but only by a hair, and it sets him up for bigger and better things. And we'll discuss those next time, because this is the end of the story for now, and to this deep dive into the life of Tom Jenkins that hopefully you're enjoying. I know I'm enjoying researching it and talking about it. And yeah, we're going to be moving forward with a rematch with George Hackenschmidt, 
Where did it happen? Under what rules? What was the outcome? Well, you're going to find out soon enough because this episode was late. Sorry about that. But I'm going back to the normal schedule, so you're not going to have to wait two weeks for another one. I'll have the next part up next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. Am I right, everybody? Yeah, I'm sorry for that one as well. Um, in the meantime, make sure you like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter and Instagram. I like to post all of the old-timey illustrations and photos and articles and headlines that I find, and I hope you find them as interesting as I do. But until next week, I'm Nick Gossert. Have a good one. Talk to you then.